0: Welcome to The Screwball Story, the podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriaku, and in each episode, I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, we'll be exploring Theodora Goes Wild from 1936. Produced by Columbia Pictures, it was directed by Richard Blitzlowski and stars Irene Dunn, Melvin Douglas, Thomas Mitchell, Thurston Hall, and Spring Byington. Theodora Goes Wild is a comedy about the freedom from hypocrisy and social morality. The titular Theodora is a prim, small-town New England girl raised by her two spinster aunts. By day, she's a Sunday school teacher and church organist, but by night, she writes salacious novels under the pen name Caroline Adams. On a work trip to New York, Theodora meets her illustrator Michael, who makes it his goal to break her out of Linfield, and her narrow-minded mentality, to go wild, as the film's title suggests. Columbia first expressed interest in adapting Mary McCarthy's story Theodora Goes Wild in April of 1935. They sent a letter on behalf of producer Everett Riskin and a treatment to the MPPDA for a pre-production evaluation. Joseph Breen's office informed them that McCarthy's story had the makings of a good picture, but cautioned Riskin that they handle the concluding scenes featuring Theodora and her neighbor Adelaide Perry's baby with discretion. With the green light to move ahead with the project, Columbia tasked screenwriter Sidney Buckman to adapt McCarthy's story for the screen. According to historian Ian Scott, Columbia studio head Harry Cohen considered Buckman to be one of Hollywood's most indispensable writers because he understood the studio's genre plus formula, where they take a run-of-the-mill story and enhance it with a unique twist. For Theodore Goes Wild, Buckman followed the same narrative structure he devised for the 1935 Gregory LaCava comedy She Married Her Boss, with an independent female character who bucks societal convention. In that film, Claudette Colbert's character, Secretary Julia Scott, proves that she's more competent at running her department store than her boss, Richard, also played by Melvin Douglas. By the end of the film, Julia and Richard literally throw bricks in the front window of the department store as a dedication of their love, and to figuratively break Richard free from his business slumber.
1: Why did you bring me here? So you don't like stores, No! And you don't like business? No! Okay, I don't either. There's a friend of mine in that jailhouse, and you gotta help me get him out. Franklin, come here. Get back. Give me a room, Franklin. Have one on me. What? Oh, that's fun. Let me have some more. Okay, give
0: me a couple more, Franklin. Oh, no, let me have that. Let okay, have uh, okay. It. In Buckman's new screenplay. Theodora's independent streak puts her at odds with the small-minded townsfolk. Buckman recycled she married her boss's capitalist denouncement in Theodora Goes Wild, but transformed it into a more pointed social commentary about moral hypocrisy and liberation. Buckman presented the first draft to the PCA on March 23, 1936. Joseph Breen objected to what he called decent church-going people made to look silly, as well as the film's flagrant portrayal of extramarital affairs. Buckman went back to the drawing board and submitted a revised draft on April 14th. He changed the name of Theodora's love interest from Jonathan to Michael and eliminated provocative language such as Michael expressing his quote-unquote frustration, which of course could be construed in a sexual manner, or that Theodora is breaking up Michael's in-name-only marriage to his estranged wife, Agnes. After some further tweaks, Columbia submitted a final revised script on August 6th, which was approved. As Buckman worked on script revisions, Columbia began the casting process. For Michael, they chose Melvin Douglas, whose charming, amiable screen persona made him a popular Hollywood leading man. Between 1931 and 1942, he appeared in 44 films while under contract at both MGM and Columbia. But for someone who began his career in the theater, working first in Shakespeare stock companies before appearing in such Broadway productions As a 1930 comedy, Tonight or Never, Douglas was growing tired of playing what he called drawing room playboys. He later admitted, and I quote, I became a kind of standard-brand, sophisticated, tongue-in-cheap drawing room type. It was the can of peas that sold best. I had done a lot in theater before and had thrived on variety. This was very limiting. Still, Douglas excelled in light comedy roles like Michael. He brought a calm joie de vivre and panache to his role, essential qualities that helped to anchor Theodora's transformation. Douglas was also a versatile actor, a master at adapting his performance style to match the energy and tone of his leading ladies. And in a genre like screwball comedy that's ripe with confident, brash heroines, Melvin Douglas's charm was indispensable. For Theodora, Columbia set their sights on Irene Dunn. After completing two back-to-back contracts with RKO, in 1935, Dunn decided to go freelance and sign multiple short-term deals with RKO, Paramount, and Columbia. With the latter studio, Dunn signed a three-picture agreement in 1935, with one film to be made per year through 1937. In the mid-1930s, freelancing was still a relatively new and somewhat risky phenomenon in the American film industry. At any given time, there were roughly 500 or so contract players signed to the Hollywood studios. For any other actor who wanted to work in the film industry, freelancing was often their only alternative. Studio contracts gave actors stability and steady incomes, but they also came with pitfalls too. The Hollywood studios dictated the terms of an actor's labor. If an actor refused to play a role or broke the terms of their contracts through other means, disciplinary action came in the form of suspension, often without pay, and as historian Jane Gaines writes, the period of suspension did not count towards the length of a contract. This was eventually proved to be unconstitutional in 1944 by the California Supreme Court after actress Olivia de Havilland sued to end her contract with Warner Brothers. The options clause also gave the hollywood studios the legal authority to review actors progress in order to decide whether or not they were still a viable investment if after six months the studio picked up their option the actor would remain employed if not they would be let go and the contract actors had no say in this process labor historian emily carmen explains that freelancing or free agent work as it was called at the time amplified career risks because actors were In her words, bereft of studio support if the film failed to deliver at the box office. But like studio contracts, freelancing was a double-edged sword. For high-profile actors like Irene Dunn, who had the power and influence in the industry, freelancing was advantageous because, in addition to the obvious financial incentives, it gave actors greater control over their careers and the freedom to choose the types of roles they wanted to play. Freelance contracts also came with enticing star perks. For example, in Dunn's 1935 contract with Columbia, she negotiated story approval, a no lono clause, plus incremental $10,000 salary increases, beginning at $65,000 for her first picture. In Dunn's subsequent 1937 three-picture deal with Universal, she included the provision that at least two of her films were to be directed by John Stahl, or a director of equal stature. And that she would not work past 6 p.m. on weekdays or on Sundays, an important clause for the devout catholic. At first, Dunn was reluctant to play Theodora, believing that she was not well suited for such a provocative comedy role. That summer, she and her husband, Dr. Francis Griffin, took a strategic vacation to Europe to disappear off Columbia's radar. However, the studio called her bluff. Upon returning to Hollywood, they offered her the role again. Reluctantly, she agreed. Dunn later said that Columbia was a studio that, quote-unquote, untyped people. Like Carol Lombard's performance in 20th Century, Columbia created a pathway for Dunn to reinvent herself in an entirely new genre. She had already established herself as a dramatic star in such films as Backstreet, The Silver Cord*, and Magnificent Obsession. In Theodore Goes Wild, Dunn plays against type, and the film lays the groundwork for her own unique brand of screwball heroine, women who let loose and go wild, how and When They Choose, later repeated in The Awful Truth in My Favorite Wife. Theodora Goes Wild went into production on August 10th. With director Richard Bozlowski at the helm. Like Dunn, he was a newcomer to the screwball genre, although one with an impressive resume, with such titles as The Painted Veil, Les Miserables, and The Garden of Allah*, According to Dunn, Bozlowski allowed his actors to breathe in their roles by improvising the characters as they saw fit. Dunn gelled with her director and recalled that he and Melvin Douglas got her through the shoot. Douglas was instrumental to Dunn's performance. He offered her guidance about beat and timing by telling her, take a pause right there, a laugh is coming, or say that line quickly and toss it away. Of their experience on set, Douglas told journalist James Bodden, I told her to remain in character and she'd get laughs simply because in person she was so prim and proper. It was a revelation. Dunn later admitted that while she had a natural flair for comedy, she found dramatic roles to be more fulfilling. She also lamented, I'm not satisfied with Theodora. You can see my nervousness. I was trying too hard. I was learning that comedy is hardest of all. You can wind up just looking silly, but the comedy films are the ones that endure." Dunn's humility ultimately sells herself short. Her comedies endure for good reason. Contrary to her fears, Dunn's scribble heroines aren't silly like some of her genre sisters. No, far from it. Benjamin Dreyer astutely observes that Dunn's characters always remain in control of themselves dipping their toes in rebellion with what he describes as contained exuberance. Theodora sees the world through curious eyes, as if she's a teenager sneaking out of her house in the middle of the night. She knows she's bucking her small town's expectations of her, and her delicious grins and coy delivery tells us that she actually likes it. Production wrapped on September 23rd, and the film opened on November 12th to overwhelmingly positive reviews. With The Hollywood Reporter calling it a, quote, uproarious romantic farce with universal appeal. Melvin Douglas was described by Photoplay as excellent, but Dunn was signaled out for her surprising comedic flair. Irene Krillman of The New York Sun described her performance as, and I quote, one where she seems to be having as much fun as her audience. Film Daily noted that Dunn proved herself to be one of the best screen comedians working in Hollywood. Apparently, the Academy also thought so too, because Dunn received her second of five Best Actress nominations at the 1937 awards. She lost to Louise Rainier, and would again the following year after being nominated for The Awful Truth, but she had firmly cemented her status as a Screwball star. By the end of its theatrical run, Theodore Goes Wild had earned Columbia $1.1 million at the box office. At the time of its release, Theodore Goes Wild was compared to Columbia's other 1936 smash hit, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Frank Nugent of the New York Times wrote, and I quote, Columbia obviously was dreaming of a diff edition of Mr. Deeds Goes to Town when it produced Theodore Goes Wild we must puncture the toy balloon by proclaiming that Theodora is no match for Longfellow Deeds in sound, honest, homespun humor. Although she goes wild, she also goes silly. Of course, there are thematic similarities between the two films. Both focus on idiosyncratic small-town folk, described as yokels in Mr. Deeds. But unlike Deej, which, although comedic, takes on a certain solemnity in its representation of populist morality, Theodora Goes Wild is far more playful and lighthearted. The film presents an exaggerated, almost farcical image of morality, represented best in a montage of the Linfield townsfolk gossiping giddily on the telephone about Theodora being implicated in Michael's divorce case.
1: <laughs> Theodora named in <a> divorce action! <laughs> Disgusting Theodora! The other woman, in suit, brought by wife, a publisher. Charges misconduct between Theodora Lynn and publisher of Adam's books? Her publisher. Did you see this brazen picture of her? Linfield's daughter is burning up the big town. Small town girl in big time scandal.
0: Wazlowski cleverly intercuts the shots of the women with close-ups of cats. The inference is all too clear. Societal hypocrisy creates an atmosphere where everyone, including Theodora and Michael, are consummate performers. They play different versions of themselves to get ahead, or even simply to keep their head above water in the murky swamp of piety. In the scene at Michael's apartment where Theodora, pretending to be Caroline Adams, gives a press conference to a band of reporters, She wears an ostentatious dress made of feathers and a matching fascinator. With the rapt attention of the reporters sitting at her feet, she tells them,
1: I have this to say to the modern young girl, gentlemen. Be free. Express yourself. Take your life in your own hands and mold it. The world will try to rob you of your freedom, but fight for it. It's all you have to live for. Oh, just me. relax. That's all for the modern girl, gentlemen. What else? Ask me anything. Have you started a new book, Miss Adams? Well, no, I haven't, but I have it pretty well in mind. Oh, Would you care to say something about it? I'd love to. It's about how love came to a girl in a small New England town. Outwardly, she seemed to belong to that narrow, benighted, little community but in her heart she longed to be called baby out of the great big city there came to this little hamlet the man who did call her baby um from there on gentlemen the story warms up oh uh, miss adams just relax sister I haven't quite finished it yet, but I guarantee it for interest, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Would that be the story of your life, Miss Adams? Oh, well, I shouldn't wonder. And uh, who would the man be? The man? Oh, now, come now, gentlemen. A lady's entitled to one secret. Miss Adams. Oh, just relax. And by the way, Miss Adams, is this Michael Grant's apartment? Michael Grant? Uh, Well, yes, this is Michael Grant's apartment. I was just getting to that. It's a very interesting story, gentlemen. Oh, Uncle John, Uncle John, come in. Mr. John Lynn, the gentleman of the press. Uh, uh, Uncle limps a little with a gal, brought it on himself. The only Lynn I'm proud of.
0: In both appearance and demeanor, Theodora uses her alter ego to be everything she couldn't be as herself. As Caroline, Theodora is uninhibited. She talks gleefully about love and is candid about her physical desires and emotional yearning. She also speaks in a relaxed cadence and tone that's quite different than when she's herself. Her silky smooth flirtatious lilt captures Caroline's impetuous nature. Theodora primarily orchestrates this press conference to push Michael towards a divorce. And of course, he overhears everything she's saying because he's standing in the back of the room. But Theodora is also motivated by her desire to emancipate herself from her own chaste ideology. Caroline gives Theodora the space to go wild, as the film title suggests, but in a way that allows her to still hold on to the comfort of her private identity. This double persona carries over to the governor's ball, where Theodora, still pretending to be Caroline, orchestrates a group of photographers to catch her and Michael together. She first sets her sights on the governor himself, in between dances, she playfully nudges him and compliments his footwork. She poses for pictures and hams it up for the press, behaving like a little minx on the hunt for prey. She then moves on to Michael. As they dance together, Theodora speaks in a deliberately loud voice so that the other guests take note of their intimacy.
1: Remember this tune, Mr. Grant? Shall I sing a you whistle? So much as open your mouth up! How did you get in here? If that isn't the funniest thing, you know, I said to myself, I bet Michael's going to ask me how I got in here. How did you get in here? Michael, dear, this is hardly the place. You tell me. Well, the students had invitations and decided not to come, so I just said to myself, Well, how. What's here? That's my elbow. Too bad it isn't your neck. Uh-huh.
0: Theodora glances over her shoulder in feigned timidity, ensuring that she has the attention of those with an earshot. Here, she's again both Caroline and Theodora, blending the romantic desires of her own heart with the wild abandon of her alter ego. As she and Michael step onto the porch, reporters surround them. Michael tells them he wants to speak to Caroline alone. As he walks down the steps, Theodora beckons the press with her hanky to follow them.
1: you're here to start something, what are you going to do? Do? Don't tell me. Wherever you are these days, something happens. Why, Michael? Now, listen to me, Theodora. If you cause any scandal here tonight, I'll never speak to you again in this lifetime. That also goes if you aren't out of this house in two minutes. It also goes if you aren't out of my apartment outside of New York in two days. Is that clear? You mean all that big speech? I mean every word of it. That I'm to go back to Linfield? To Linfield. And wait? And wait. This is goodbye, Matko. Yes, but there's no need to go to pieces, especially here. Oh, I'm all right. I, I'll go. I'll go back. But I would like to have something to remember you, by. Yeah, sure, sure, anything. A kiss? Not here. When I see you, off, I'll come down to the train. But you won't. You'll be afraid. No, yes, I will. Well, you won't, but I... Thank you, Miss Adams. Why, you, you lowlife snakes, you dirty double-clossy. If you print that picture, I'll break your necks. If you print that picture, I'll skin you alive. I'll track you down to the... And as for you, if I ever said I loved you, I... What's going on here? The notorious Caroline Adams, novelist in the arms of my husband. Who, Who? Yes, that's right. Isn't that nice?
0: Theodora pretends to be heartsick, knowing full well that she's playing for an audience. She coquettishly turns her head away from Michael, flutters her eyelashes, and even pats her face with her hanky, all in an effort to feign innocence. As she begs Michael for one final kiss, the photographers make their move, which draws a crowd, including Michael's wife. At that moment, Caroline becomes Theodora. With Michael now free, she can finally live the way she wants, as herself. The people of Linfield remain comically hypocritical to the end, exposing the film's persistent underlying cynicism. Theodora's busybody neighbor, Rebecca Perry, played by Spring Byington, recruits all of the townsfolk to stay home and boycott her arrival
1: oh we'll welcome her all right i for one am going to stay right indoors and pull down my blinds and when she finds herself coming into an empty depot i hope she'll understand she isn't wanted in linfield we have the solemn word of every man woman and child in linfield that nobody will set foot in the direction of that depot
0: however newspaper editor jed waterbury organizes a celebratory jamboree to greet her at the train station the whole town including rebecca eventually attends (laughs)
1: <laughs> How to do? How to do? How do? You do? How do, you do? <laughs> well, I got to thinking it might be better to come and just stare at her Did she dropped through the ground for shade? Well, look who's here. Linfield's literary circle. <laughs> you get a lawyer and try to stop me from spending my own money any way i like
0: (laughs) theodora gets the last laugh when after stepping off the train she presents rebecca with a baby her granddaughter born from her daughter adelaide's secret elopement the old theodora would not so much as step out of line in fear of what people like rebecca might think of her but armed with caroline's confidence Theodora gives her townsfolk the final send-up they deserve. She embraces her liberation, free to go wild on her own terms. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriaku. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow us on Instagram or Twitter at TheScribbleStory. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye bye. <coughs>